Welcome to the pod. Today we're joined by Bennett Tomlin, author, data scientist, all around crypto sleuth, vilest member of Vile Gang. Bennett's co writing a book about Tether with uh, Caspian C, and we'll get to that in a moment. First, Bennett, how about a little backstory? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Sure. So I was uh, born in Minnesota, grew up in a suburb of Chicago in Illinois, got my undergraduate degree in biochemistry at Augustana College, and then got my master's in biomedical informatics at the University of Chicago. Wow. Impressive. So uh, you're in uh, the field of data science, as I understand it. Uh, ostensibly, yes. <laughs> what, what does that mean? Is that like a, a lot of Excel spreadsheets and Google Analytics and things like that? Or what are we talking about here? So I work for a small consulting and investigation firm that works okay. in the pharmacy fraud space. Mm. So I'm responsible for maintaining our fraud detection algorithm, which is where we run the claims from the various uh, insurance groups through to try to figure out which claims might be fraudulent. Um, so yeah, I maintain all of our different computer systems and do all of that. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, that sounds really interesting. Um, kind of leads me to like, your first book, The Optimized Guide to Intermittent Fasting, fat, Faster Weight Loss. Was the goal in writing this book an attempt to bring some scientific rigor to the field of weight loss? Yeah. Um, I was also just trying to lose weight myself. And I have a habit of doing a lot of research whenever I'm doing something. So I'd done a bunch of research and realized a lot of other people were wrong. So I wrote that up and self-published it. Right, right. So, you know, you know like 90% of my diet is like carbs. Um, <laughs> what, what would be, a, what, how, do I, how do I correct this? Because, you know, I, I could lose a few myself. Um, well, I, I did have good luck with intermittent fasting when I was doing it. And the nice thing about it is it's simplicity. You just go a while without eating and then afterwards you eat. And so like when I was in college and stuff, that was, that worked well for me just because lots of times I was away from my apartment at various places on campus. And so I didn't have much time to eat. Right. Yeah. I, I find I eat out of boredom, you know? Yeah. That's I've, the big I've, one for me. I've struggled with that a lot during quarantine, especially just oh, yeah. being at home 24 seven, basically with pantry and everything right there. Yeah. Yeah. So what is your stance on iron cookware? Because, you know, Cass keeps bugging me about this, uh, you, you know, because I kind of ruined a few things. It's like, you can't get it wet. Are you, are you kidding me? It feels like I'm taking crazy pills that you'd have cookware that you can't get wet or well, what's your take on this? I love cast iron. Yeah. I, I use it for a lot of different stuff, um, but it can be a little finicky. Yeah. Um, it is not as finicky as a lot of people make it. Like as long once you get your initial seasoning, which is really right. just the fats being polymerized onto the surface of the iron to make it nonstick. After you do that, you can use a little bit of water. You can even use a little bit of dish soap if there's something stuck in there and it's not going to hurt it. Um, I mean, the entire point of the seasoning is that it's supposed to form this protective barrier, this nonstick barrier. And so the people who panic and think their pans ruined because they use dish soap on it are being dramatic, in my opinion. No, but what if I put it in the dishwasher? That's a bad idea. I think we told you that when it happened. <laughs> I mean, what? A, I, am I supposed to like clean it with 
with my bare hands like an animal, like I throw everything in the dishwasher and then it comes out all rusty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when iron gets wet, it rusts. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know what? I, I'd be a little remiss in my duties as host not to bring up the avatar, the Twitter avatar. So, I mean, it's, it's iconic at this point. It's been memed so many times. Where, where, where is it taken from? It was taken in my garage or my parents' garage by my aunt, who was a professional photographer, right after I graduated college and was yeah. like starting job search and grad school applications and stuff. And now at this point, I almost feel like I can't change it because there's so no. many images circulating <laughs> and newbies would just be confused. Yeah, yeah. It, it is quite amazing. Um, so, but how close is the, the archetype of Bennett Tomlin, you know, like the platonic ideal of Bennett Tomlin? How close is that to the real Bennett Tomlin? I'm not exactly sure what the platonic ideal of Bennett would well, be. Well, that, that avatar, you know, you look at oh. that and like, that's sort of like the platonic ideal. Like it's, it's, it's like staring into the sun. From, from like 8.30 in the morning until 5 p.m. at night when I'm at work, I am very professional and get things done. Now, when I log on to Twitter after work hours, I think my tweets quickly um, prove I'm not an average suit. Um, so, <laughs> so, so one thing I'm never quite sure about you, especially with this book, we'll talk about it in a minute, is um, do you consider yourself a Bitcoiner? Um, I've owned Bitcoin at a couple different points. I don't have any right now. Right. Um, you don't just hoggle. because I've got student loans and it makes more okay. sense to pay those off. Um, <laughs> Does it though? Does it though? Wait until hyper Bitcoinization and then maybe you'll have a different opinion on that. We, we can have a, a discussion on risk adjusted <laughs> returns after that. Um, right, right. So I don't think I'm a Bitcoiner in the sense that. I'm not particularly welcome in a lot of what would be considered Bitcoin communities, but I've always been very interested in Bitcoin and what it potentially allows. The idea of censorship-resistant finance and censorship-resistant payments is a really exciting idea. Right. And I even get excited about some of the other cryptocurrencies. I remember the first time I read the Ethereum white paper, which was, I was late to come to Ethereum, like 2017. And I remember just being amazed at the concept of like a worldwide Turing complete censorship resistant computing engine. Right. And like, so I'm, I'm one of the few people who I think is actually here more for the tech than the money. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's me the meme. At, which puts me at odds with a lot of Bitcoiners. Right. And what, what year did you get into Bitcoin? Um, I've always been, so I really got into it, not until yeah. 17. Like okay. that's when I started yeah. writing about it and talking about it publicly. I knew about it earlier than that. Not super early, probably like 2014, just because mm -hmm. I was on tech blogs, on forums, and you'd yeah. see it mentioned yeah. and talked about, but I never had taken the time. The first time I read the white paper was 2017. So I think that's probably the fairest date to pick. Right. And I guess that, that kind of leads us into the book a little bit. So... What led you to start investigating Tether? Uh, I know you, you're co-writing this book with Caspian C. Maybe you can give us a little background about how that sure. came about. So um, I'd say about middle of 2017, I got interested in crypto and started tweeting about it. 
Um, I even applied for a couple jobs at the crypto space back then. Like really? I applied to be an analyst at Multicoin and a couple of other things like that. Um, but then I kept doing more and more research. And by like October, November of 2017, I had found Bitfinex, who was at that point really leading the charge against Bitfinex yeah. and Tether. And I read through every single blog post they had, um, did some more research into Bitfinex, and then I came across uh, Caspian C. Is it, it, so is it Caspian C or is it Caspian C? So I've been, calling him, Cas- I've been calling him Caspian C yeah, for yeah. three years now, so that's what it is for me. That's what I thought it was, and then I heard it on a podcast. I'm like, oh, Caspian C, he, he now I get the it. the name based on its relationship to the geographical area. So Caspian uh. So Caspian C makes more sense. Yeah. It's just, I didn't make that connection until a couple months ago. So. Yeah. <laughs> and you're writing a book with them. Yeah. And <laughs> to be fair, that, that is just his pseudonym. So right, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, he does have an actual name. I occasionally call him. Um, <laughs> yeah, so let's, so, let's, let's get into the dirt of the book. What, what's, the, what's the thesis here? So... Fundamentally, it is both a history and an analysis of uh, Digfinex and iFinex. So that's Bitfinex, Tether, all their various acquisitions and the things they've done. Um, it goes from their founding, where you start like with Raphael Nicolay, the founder of Bitfinex, who was shilling and aggressively participating in a ton of Ponzi's right up until he founds Bitfinex. Mm. And like you've got the quotes from early in Bitfinex history when uh, Raphael's like, yeah, we've got the best security. I'm the only one with the keys and I close my office when we have guests over. So like, what could go wrong? Now, when you, when you say Ponzi's, are you talking about Ponzi's within the crypto space or are these pre-Bitcoin Ponzi's? No, these were, these were Bitcoin Ponzi's. Okay, it was yeah. some of the old Bitcoin talk lending schemes where yeah. they were just classic really pyramid schemes. Well, it's funny how lending has come about, you know, all the, all the things in this space are circular, right? I mean, lending is the hot new thing again. It, it is. And um, I mean, the difference now is allegedly that the lending is supposed to be disintermediated because before, like the reason Bitfinex got market share when it started out is because it allowed lending. And you're seeing mm-hmm. that again with DeFi, the ones that allow large and aggressive lending, large and aggressive returns quickly get huge amounts of money deposited in them and so yeah it's very circular i still don't understand how like a stable coin can get you like 10 12 percent return at like block or celsius like it doesn't make sense in my brain like well, how is that even working yeah i mean block is still burning through all their vc money uh, yeah, and they okay. expect their rates will probably go up soon celsius um is an interesting one. They actually take their customers' deposits and then will loan them out on other exchanges and try to like pocket the differential. So like Celsius in specific uh, aggressively lends on Bitfinex. And so part of the reason they're able to get the returns they do is because they're aggressively lending out the funds you lent them. Right. So I guess let's let's uh, circle back to Tether a little bit. <clears throat> I guess the, the big criticism is that it's not fully backed or maybe even backed at all. Um, I'm, I'm, I imagine you'll be covering that in the book. Do you have any mm-hmm. insights there? What's going on behind the scenes? Like, how are they able to prop this thing up for so long? You know, if there's, if there's all these uh, shenanigans happening. 
Yeah, and this is a thing that like among the few of us who are like actively investigating Tether will stop and talk about because a lot of the mechanics behind the backing seem odd. Um, at this point, we know for sure, because Tether's lawyer admitted it, that part of the backing is Bitcoin. We know for sure that they do not segregate their corporate and customer funds. So that's right. all Yeah, together. they got in trouble with that, yeah. Um, we know that part of the um, backing is just in loans they've given up, the receivables on those loans. And we know for a fact that they have loan tethers to Galaxy Digital, to trading firms. Mm-hmm. And so my guess is the reason we've never really seen, we've seen like two total tether redemptions um, and we never really seen like a run on the bank and they never seem to go down like all the other stable coins do is because my intuition at least is their issuance strategy, at least partially is loaning out tethers initially to OTC desk, trading firms, whatever. And then, backing those tethers they just loaned out with a with like with the loan note representing those tethers and so i think what we're likely to find out when or if this thing ever ends is that a whole bunch of tethers were um never really backed at all or were backed by a like complicated set of loan notes involving them self-dealing to bitfinex they claim i think a 74 percent backing at this point that was back when they had a market cap of like three billion when okay. we first got into the New York Attorney General investigation. There have been no audits, no attestations, right, yeah. no notes from lawyers, bankers, anyone really since then. And it's just like it, it kind of baffles me that it's gone on this long. Like you and me both. Because honestly, I mean, if 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 they can survive indefinitely it almost fulfills the the Bitcoin thesis. You've got, you know, borderless money that's pretty anonymous. And it, 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 I, I, I don't know what to make of it because the whole point of the blockchain is to kind of skirt, you know, the regulatory landscape. But if the regulators don't even care, I mean, what, what, what are we doing here? Well, I mean, I think it is important to remember that Tether can and has frozen tethers before. Yeah, yeah. And so it lacks the essential censorship resistance that is supposed to be the selling point of blockchains. True. And um, so, you know, when, when we see like a, another billion tethers being printed, um, what, what do you think is happening there behind the scenes? Do you think there is, you know, are, are there re- real dollars on the other side or is it like what's happening there? I'm sure there is at some point, at least some amount of real dollars. Now, who has claims on those dollars um, might be part of the issue here because I've also wondered, for example, if, because Tether and Bitfinex at different points have shared banking, um, if Tether effectively used Bitfinex customer deposits to create Tethers and essentially were pretending dollars they were using to issue Tethers had no claim on them when they were actually claimed by the users of Bitfinex. Um, So I'm not really sure what's behind the scenes. And that's been one of the biggest frustrations for us as investigators is that there's no easy way to figure that out. There's almost no traders who want to talk about getting tethers. Um, there was a Twitter account 
in 2018 called Tether Trying or Trying Tether, one of those two. And they purported to get tethers and then they were going to redeem them and document the whole process on their Twitter. And then they got delayed on the withdrawal and then they deleted the entire Twitter account. Well, with the, um, with the withdrawal, I think, um, and the reason you don't really see runs on the bank is you you can't redeem them if you have, I think, less than a hundred thousand, or you have like a relationship with an exchange. There's it's a co- complicated process to, to turn tethers into dollars through bit f- through tether. Yeah, for the longest time, the only place you could redeem them was through Bitfinex. Right. Um, yeah. It was either end of 2018 or beginning of 2019, Tether reopened their own verification platform right. and allegedly started verifying new customers to like their website, to tether.to. Um, and there is like a $100,000 minimum or whatever, yeah. which yeah. I think for a lot of the people, like I think the vast majority of Tethers are held by people where the $100,000 would not be an issue. Right. Now, I think the majority of Tether users also hold less, vastly less than a hundred thousand tethers right yeah yeah. so you you don't have the little guy running for the exit but and the big guys the whales they know they got to keep this market afloat so they're not going to do it either so i mean would you say bitfinex is were they responsible for the run-up in 2017 do you see any correlation there between tether and that run-up that's 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 the dangerous question yeah um so fundamentally to me, if there was a single unbacked tether in the marketplace during that period that everyone assumed was backed, then there was some amount of distortion of that market. The issue is whether or not that was significant or meaningful. Right. So I think we can reasonably say that both Bitfinex and Tether have done things during their tenure as companies that would be considered fraudulent or deceitful. The question question has always been, was it enough to affect the price of Bitcoin? And so in the example of 2017, I think what we're really seeing is an interaction between a whole bunch of different factors. So there was real um, money entering crypto at that period. And there were people excited, excited about it and willing to pay more for it. But I do think there was a fundamental distortion in the market due to potentially unbacked tethers, undisclosed loans between related parties like Bitfinex and Tether, um, things like that. Now, whether or not that made a $1,000 difference to the peak, a $10,000 difference, I don't know if there's a good way to figure that out. I mean, um, there's some economists who tried. They, there was the paper that came out, uh, is Bitcoin untethered? But yeah. In reading both the original paper and the revised paper of that, I never thought that they showed sufficiently strong effect to be like really confident in Mm. it. Mm. And so fundamentally, I don't know how much of an influence Bitfinex and Tether had. And I think a lot of this we're going to start trying to figure out retrospectively in some future time where Bitfinex and Tether don't exist. And we're able to kind of judge by the effect that has on the market, what their effect might've been in the past. But even that is kind of imperfect at best because the market has changed so fundamentally since Bitfinex and Tether were at the top. Bitfinex volumes are minuscule now. They can't touch anything close to what they used to do. Tether is still printing huge amounts, but 
they get even less news coverage than they used to. You no longer hear about like the story used to be that it was Chinese OTC desks buying up all the tethers or that it was uh, Chinese exchanges who needed a way to try to evade capital controls and stuff like that. And you no longer even hear people trying to really justify the increase in the size of tether. It's just a thing that happens and we all observe collectively. Yeah, I mean, is it just casino tokens at this point where it's, you know, it's what it's kind of the the grease for the crypt, the whole crypto industry. I don't know. I I honestly I the last few months with Tether, I feel like I have lost my mind because they're <laughs> under investigation by the New York Attorney General, right. by the CFTC, by the Department of Justice, and they're exploding. They just yeah. keep getting bigger, and just everyone in crypto is just like, huh. That's interesting. Well, I mean, okay. Yeah, and that, that, that is interesting to me as well. Like in the face of all this evidence, it, it, it reminds me, you know that, um, that scene from Naked Gun where Leslie Nielsen is like, nothing to see here and everything's exploding oh, yeah. behind him. <laughs> that kind of reminds me of like the tether apologists. Do you have any uh, thoughts on that? I, I often feel the same way. And like more and more over the last couple of months, I feel like that's been the case with a lot of things in crypto. Yeah. Like Bit, BitMEX turns on KYC and has this run in and yeah. there was one day of excitement about it. Um, OKX gets hacked. Basically, no one cares. DragonX turns out they're insolvent. No one cares. Um, and it feels... The impression all the recent things in crypto give me is that even less so than in the past, there's not much new money coming in. Right. Yeah, I get that sense as well. It's just circulating back and forth. And like, yeah. and that's even more clear. Like you saw that leading up to the happening. Yeah. Everyone thought Bitcoin was going to go up. There's the same buy pressure, less sell pressure, whatever. And I mean, it has gone up in the last couple of days since the PayPal announcement. Yeah. But for a long time, it just kind of did nothing. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think um, the micro strategy, Michael Saylor, four hundred million dollar buy-in, or the Square, fifty million dollar buy-in, has that had any impact? Because well, here's the way I see it: it's like you think like four hundred million real dollars flowing into this market, it would have had a far greater impact on the price. Like we're not talking tethers here; we're talking about supposedly real dollars. I mean, but look at the like stated volumes for the exchanges and stuff. 400 million shouldn't be that much in terms of what's allegedly moving across the ecosystem all the time. Well, but it, can we trust that? Well, I mean, that's the fundamental thing. Um, yeah, I, the, the Michael Saylor thing is interesting to me because MicroStrategy is not really like a investment fund that's buying this as an investment with the hope of making money. And right. so I've struggled to figure out what Sailor's meta goal is with this investment, but I was surprised that they were not even to, able to work that up into one decent hype cycle. Yeah. And it was kind of weird that the market dumped soon afterwards. Like I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, he's really, maybe he's just got a really good poker face, you know, what is it? Um, Buy, buy the hype, sell the news kind of thing. Yeah. Or there's other people who, when they heard the news, figured that this was going right. to be a yeah. moment with decent liquidity for them to exit. And so they took advantage yeah. of it. I think their third quarterly earnings get released tomorrow. So that'll be interesting to see if there's, if there, you know, if there's any other details in there that they they haven't really disclosed. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. 
Um, but I mean, I think again, $400 million shouldn't be that much in the scope of like how much Bitcoin is allegedly moving each day. Right. And so I, I don't think that alone is enough to bring much real money into this ecosystem. Well, a lot to think about there. So what, so when's this book coming out, Bennett? As soon as we finish writing it. Um, that's, uh, that's kind of the best I can give you. We've got a few chapters done and then we've got a lot of chapters that are like partially done and we're trying to figure out what to do with them. Like right. I've got a chapter on the New York attorney general investigation but that's not done yet. And we've got like notes from their original CFTC settlement and stuff like that. They're waiting to see if they do anything with the CFTC again in the next couple months so we can tie that together. And really right now it lacks any kind of compelling ending. Yeah, I guess you're waiting for it to explode because that'll make a great ending. Yeah, either for it to explode <laughs> or for us to just get to the point where I guess we're sending this. <laughs> Well, there you have it, folks. I want to thank Bennett Tomlin, who you can find on Twitter at the handle Bennett Tomlin with one, two, three T's, three T's in that handle. Look out for his upcoming book on Tether. Anything you want to add, Bennett? That's all I've got. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. And we'll see you next time.